Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do they really know? Every week, me, Jason Carty. And me, Stephen Cockcroft, the Beatle brains of Ireland, go here, there and everywhere, taking a forensic deep dive into the story of the greatest band of all time, the Beatles. Come with us every week on a magical mystery tour as we talk albums, singles, solo careers, books, films and so much more. Become a member of Nothing Is Real on ACAST Plus today for ad-free content, bonus episodes and so much more because happiness is a warm podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. When the White Album came out in November 1968, although it was 30 tracks and over an hour and a half long, there were still some songs left on the Substitutes bench. And uh, today we're going to have a little walk through some of those songs and look at their stories and see should they have uh, should they have remained there or should the album have been a triple album, Stephen? It's a mixed bag of off cuts. That's, what, that, that, that's all I'll say. <laughs> that's the that's that's the pull quote. <laughs> that's the pull quote. It's a mixed bag of all cut. Um, but I, I I sometimes get very obsessed with the notion of what is a double album, and you know, some double albums. The, the 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 era of the CD has kind of damaged what a double album should have been. Yes, you know, technically, something like Egypt Station is a double album, but nobody sees Egypt Station as a double album because it's just this one CD. They just think it's too long. Yeah. <laughs> well, they think it's well. One of the things that's come out recently is they've announced a new David Bowie box set of his '90s albums, and all these yes. '90s albums are on three and four sides of vinyl because they were all tailored for CDs. And you're like, well, are they double albums now? Are they not double albums? But the the White Album, you know, manages to get its length right. Probably. It does. It does. I mean, I know you're a big Sting fan, and uh, the, the uh, <laughs> I'd rather be stung by a the, bee. Uh, the, yeah, the first the first album I remember is nothing like the Sun that came out on yeah. C- CD, and it was you know seventy minutes long, but it was like fourteen minutes yeah, aside on vinyl. You, yeah. you know, and that was the thing where everyone said, "Right, well, this is the shift to CD." Um, well, also that that big selling point of a two vinyl disc on one CD, you know, for yes. things like Exile on Main Street and all the rest. But it's but those albums still get to be called double albums. But yet, yeah. oh, Egypt Station doesn't. Anyway, that's beside the point. But the, the, the White Album is over ninety minutes long. You could t- easily take another half dozen tracks, get it up to one hundred and ten minutes, and split it in three. You know, that, you that's, and you know, three twelve track albums, totally doable. Should have been a triple album, absolutely. Should have been a triple album. Um, let's. Uh, so there's a couple of ways of looking at this. Obviously, we're going to talk about some of the songs that actually made it into the studio. Um, maybe the first thing we should have a quick look at is, if you think about what songs were in the ether, is you look at uh, the Esher demos, and there's stuff that happens on the Esher demos that don't make it into the studio in 1968. Yes. Um, and from if, if you actually get the vinyl uh, 2018 Esher demo version of the White Album Deluxe Edition, 
actually it's a lovely way to listen to the Eater demos because side four is all of these songs together in one go and it's like a parallel universe white album side yeah, so it's, it, it sounds, and it sounds fantastic. Uh, you yeah, know, it does. I, I mean, I, I heard the Isha demos over the years in really quite poor quality, but uh, I was listen, listening to it yesterday, and uh, it, it, some of it really stands up. You think you could just, in this day and age, you could just put that out as a nice, relaxed, unplugged. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that that um, side of the album is kind of eight tracks, and the ones that never make it to the studio officially for the White Album Sessions, we've got Junk. So I know you're a big fan of Paul McCartney's Junk. Uh, who wouldn't want to have seen Paul McCartney's Junk get an airing in 1968? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. We, we were hoping he'd dust down his junk at some point. But uh, the, the the Junk is is one of these things where he keeps sort of new, like he's playing it in Let It Be, and he's kind of bringing. He's he's. I think he's waiting for somebody to say that's a great song, Paul. Yeah. Get out that Junk song again. Um, but obviously it doesn't appear till McCartney won and we talk about it in our McCartney episode. Um, there's Child of Nature, which I think is John's song that he's constantly tootling around with and nobody really shines a light on it. Un- un- understandably. <laughs> yeah. You know, lo- 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 lovely melody, clunky lyric. Yeah, and I think he knew that at the time, yeah. you know, because obviously, for those of you who don't know, Child of Nature goes on to become John's solo track, Jealous Guy. And... Um, yeah, I, I always found that clunky lyric. I'm just a child of nature, one of nature's children. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like that character in Mystery Men. To go up, you must go down. To be a child of nature, you must be one of nature's children. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so Child of Nature gets uh, left behind. And then there's two tracks from these demos that we know better from being on Abbey Road, which are Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam. Yeah. And you don't uh, you don't think of them as being... Uh, white album songs, you know, at all. I know that, that that's obvious because they end up on Abbey Road, but you don't. We get so obsessed with the Beatles being cut into the ears and chunks. I can't really imagine them fitting in on 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 the white album. No, and I think part of that is maybe just the sound is so different. You know, the production mm. sound. We, we talked about that before. Abbey Road is this very kind of slick. Uh, the the white album. I don't know. There's a kind of chunkier sound to the White Album or something. Uh, but uh, yeah, they, they, as you say, you, you look at things and we tend to compartmentalize everything. So since we opened our most recent season with the White Album side two, this is a kind of a companion piece to try and shake out the cobwebs and look at some of the tracks that could have been there. Um, where should we start? Should we start with Etc., the song that nobody knows? The song, the mystery song. Yes. The mystery song. Where is Etc.? Well, for years, I thought this was just a joke song. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember the the name cropping up in those reprints of the Beatles monthly books and, and uh, there were various stupid song titles being given, etc. was one of them. Pink litmus paper shirt was another one. Yes. You know, colliding circles, which just seemed to be people making up songs. And I just assumed that etc. didn't really exist, but apparently it does exist. Or did, did Apparently exist. it does. You saying pink litmus paper shirt there has just sent me into a, a flashback hole of, um, I mean, uh, you know, as a teenager, there wasn't many places, um, there wasn't much I knew about bootlegs, but there, there were guys on O'Connell Bridge in Dublin who used to sell these fluorescent coloured yes. tapes. I have many of those. Yeah. And you, yes, and usually they would be radio gigs and stuff I didn't care about, but uh, I remember buying one Beatles one there and it had pink litmus paper shirt and these tapes were a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and I had no idea what I was listening to. I still don't know what pink litmus paper shirt is, but uh, yeah, it's one of those tracks that sort of... Um, 
yeah, colliding circles and the one about candles and all the rest. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but 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 even etc. Never made it to a bootleg because uh, well, he, he was apparently writing it for Marianne Faithful. Is that the plan? Yes, uh, he Paul meant this is a Paul song. We should say and um, yes. In many years from now, he said that he was asked to write the song or was wrote the song for Mary, intending to give it to Marianne Faithful. Um, and, uh, but she passed on this song. So what he says is, I knew Marianne, so it was natural that I would be asked to write a song at some point. I did write a song, but it was not a very good one. It was called Etc. And it's a bad song. I think it's a good job that it's died a death in some tip bin. Yeah, it's very odd to hear him say that because... We all love him, but his quality control isn't the most no stable. And for him to actually, I, I you know, it's probably another one of these McCartney instances of he's just decided or he's been told it's a bad song, and that's the song's fate forever. Well, you think you know we touched on this before, where was it one on one is two, or, you know, he where he's he's desperately pitching songs, and you John is saying, oh, Paul wrote some terrible songs that he tried to, you know, foist on other people, but here. It's Paul making this assessment. Um, So there's a couple of things coming from that quote. So he says, um, later on, he said, you know, uh, Marianne was just, who was, who at that time was a newcomer. Well, she wasn't a newcomer. You know, so this is 1960, this is is middle of 1968. She's four years into her career. Um, And he says, I suppose thinking back on it, after as tears go by, maybe they were looking for a more sort of yesterday, something more poignant, something more Baroque. She's just about to appear on the rock rock and roll circus with the Rolling Stones and you know, she's not a newcomer. So that's the first thing. And then he said, uh, you know, it's a bad song. And you, you were saying that somebody must have told him it was a bad song. People thought it was a good song. The engineer thought it was a good song. Yeah. And, and also, you know, he wasn't, uh, he also had Mary Hopkins at this point, you know, who he's trying to get material for. So, you know, a McCartney type song, you, you think, well, I'm not trying to pit Mary Hopkins against Marianne Faithful in, the, in some sort of fight, grand celebrity fight, death fight, match. Fight, 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 fight. But, um, uh, you know, I would certainly say, Marianne has a certain darkness to the quality of her work and yep. Mary Hopkins has a certain lightness to the quality of her work. So you'd imagine that the song would fit somewhere in that uh, spectrum, <laughs> you know, if not, not for one, then the other. Um, so if we try and get, we try, try and work out what, what this song is actually like. Um, well, you have a quote here from Alan Brown, the engineer, because he says in the complete Beatles recording sessions, the, the old Mark Lewis and classic. It was a very beautiful song. I recall it was a ballad and it had the word etc. several times in the lyric. That's a, a clue. I only heard it twice when he recorded it and when he played it back to him, the tape was taken away and I've never heard of it since. Um, yeah, like it's, it's, it's just weird that a Beatles song disappears. So, yeah. So you have an engineer uh, who's you know used to working with the Beatles, saying this is a, this is a, this is a beautiful song. This is a lovely ballad. Uh, this is very nice. So supposedly, what happened is um, Paul recorded this twentieth uh, of August, nineteen sixty-eight, during mm. the same same session for Mother Nature's Son and Wild Honey Pie, and then he took the tape away. Chris Chris uh, Thomas takes the tape away, and it's never seen or heard of again. Um, now, there is supposedly an acetate of this mm-hmm. in McCartney's, you know, vault. But why have we not heard it? If it was, you know, we've had anthology, we've had the White Album 50th anniversary sessions. Um, yeah. 
Goodbye, which was never recorded for the Beatles, has popped up on on Abbey Road. It's an unofficial Beatles song. There's nothing you can do about it. I know. It's on uh, the Abbey Road box. See also, come and get it. You know, so yeah, yeah. it's it seems very odd to me that um, this has not appeared on one of these expanded sets and also that it's it's paul making the assessment paul seems to be making his own assessment this is a bad song and they are in this you know thick of 1968 and one we'll talk about as, as a little bit more later on is how they are in the business now of songs for apple songs for other people yep. cr- creating content creating tent uh, for the masses you know it's like uh just, just, just like uh, the 21st century, they're just trying to get stuff out there as much as possible yeah. to try and monetize the space. And um, yeah, as you say, it is weird that, um, you know, that I can't think of any other example in the Beatles canon particularly where, you know, they're writing songs, Paul records a demo of a song, and then it, it kind of soprano style is pushed off the end of a pier and it's never seen again. It's it... No, there is, a, there is a suggestion that this, this piece of material was reworked um, mm. for Thingy Bob, which was the Apple single um, for the uh, Black Dyke Mills band. But that doesn't really sit with, with the engineer saying this was a beautiful ballad because the, the Thingy Bob is a really kind of, you, you know, archetypal brass band. <laughs> kind of thing. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, the, you know, we should maybe we should talk briefly about the Black Dyke Mills Band because they were, as you say, one of the what we notice across these songs is that the Apple first four and yes. the Black Dyke Mills Band is one of the first four Apple singles that, that come out all at the, the same time. And um, I, I, I guess I always felt the Black Dyke Mills Band were kind of there to show, hey, we're not just a rock and roll label. We're here for anything esoteric, whatever crazy kind of stuff you, you like. I think so. I think so. So, so uh, it was a theme song. He was specifically commissioned to write a theme song for the uh, well-known and much-loved and well-remembered London Weekend Television sitcom of the same name. I, no I idea. Not, I, no, no, not nothing. A not a clue. I'm assuming um, it's wiped. It's yeah, one of those shows that's been wiped. Probably, probably, mm. pro- probably better for it. Um, so he writes this uh, as a specific um, commission, and uh, then he, he goes up north uh, to record this uh, song, and they record Yellow Submarine as the, uh, as the B-side. And something I, I came across um, just last night, uh, the writing credit on Thingamabob, McCart- mm. McCartney Lennon. Certainly in America, it was it was released as McCartney Lennon, and you sort of wonder is that Paul asserting his claim to this, or is it Lennon saying don't want anything to do with this? Yes, I, I do not recall writing this brass band umpa song. Yeah, yeah. The the Black Dyke Mills Band were established in 1855, and they are still together, albeit with none of their original members. Sadly so not. Sad. That is no, sad. Sadly it's not. It's a pity. Um, they still exist. They have a website. You can go off and look at them. They're just. Uh, I, I don't think they're still signed to Apple. They're not. They're not still signed signed to Apple. But I looked at their website, and to be fair, they do not overplay the Beatles connection. Mm. You know, if I'd recorded a, a song for Apple, I'd be stopping people in the street, uh, Donovan style, uh, to tell people <laughs> about it. But they don't. They they have one little quote, and it says uh, just the best brass band in the land, and that's a quote from Sir Paul McCartney. And that that's that's literally the only thing I could see on a quick uh-huh. scoot around their website. But they they worked with Paul again. Yeah, they're on um, everyone's favourite Back to the Egg, aren't they? Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. 
Uh, yeah, it's uh, there's some nice pictures of Paul and Martha, the sheepdog, up at the Black Dyke Mills thingamabob recording. She gets around. <laughs> and um, there's also the famous tale uh, where they're, they're driving back and McCartney pulls into a pub and starts playing Hey Jude, which hasn't been released yet to a, to a, a, a group of people, probably trying to get home, probably trying to get out the door. He's like, stop, hold on. They, they were driving down the motorway, or I suppose there wasn't a motorway in those days, but they were driving back and uh, they decided to stop, look at a map, and there was a village called Harold, and they just liked the name <laughs> of the village called Harold. So they stopped uh, at the Oakley Arms and uh, demoed, uh, yeah. hey, premiered Hey Jude. They, they loved their randomness. They certainly did. Um, so, yeah, if we're trying to give it a score as to whether it should have been on the White Album, we just don't know. We just haven't no. to it. I think I think we have to we have to take Paul's assessment. Uh, you know, if he says it's not a good song, it's not good enough for Marianne Faithful, not good enough for Mary Hopkin, yeah. not, not good enough fifty years on for a archive release, which is the strangest aspect of this. I think that uh, uh, it has. Yeah, to like we're, we're forgiving we're forgiving for a lot of strange songs, and we're going to be talking about one of them in a second. But um, you know, it's uh, yeah, it is odd that it hasn't existed. And as I said, you know. When you think of some of the other things that have slipped out under the Paul McCartney name, well, you think, how bad is this? Well, it, it's it's just even, even you know, you've got Step Inside, Love, Can You Take Me Back, Panina. You know, mm. all, all those things are, are official, not if not canon, they're official uh, 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 Beatles tracks now. And uh, this seems to be a complete start to finish demo anyway the key thing is that the tape disappears and that that's the key step that means it hasn't yeah. been copied bootlegged escaped leaked because yeah. everything can be recontextualized if it's leaked so it becomes this kind of legendary thing a bit like carnival of light so etc is track one that uh could have been on the white album but we'll just never know the next song to talk about is one that probably everybody should know or might know which is sour milk sea yes um Everybody likes Sour Milk Sea, or do they? Well, I do. I do too. I, and my one problem with Sour Milk Sea is I don't really think you can make anything popular with the word sour in it. I think the thing that's, I think as a pop song, it's a really sort of ugly word to, to, to kind of have. Although, come to think of it, the biggest selling pop album of the year I've just realised is called Sour and it's by Olivia Rodrigo. So I don't know anything. <laughs> this, is, this, is why, this is why you're not... not this I, I could tell when I was in the middle of that sentence that I was not going to get out of it alive. I could see the look, I, I could see the look of horror dawning. Um. <laughs> so maybe I'm wrong. It, it, I don't know. I think I, uh, the first time I remember hearing about this song was um, as a teenager reading one of these, I think it was Lewis and Stay by Day. And like, oh, they released a song called Sour Milk Sea. And you kind of wonder, what's that like? Like, is that a, you know, a yellow submarine type? You know, it's another one of the seas that they visit. Or is it a, a yeah. you know, a rocker or a slow song? Or is it psychedelic? It, it's, it, you know, you'd expect it to be kind of a psychedelic type trip, but it's really a straightforward rocker. It's a straightforward rocker. And that, that's, that's interesting. It hadn't occurred to me that it would have been an ideal um, song for ye- the Yellow Submarine song track. You know, yeah, they could sorry, you they could they, they could have, they could have put that in there. So you see, so you're redeeming yourself as a, a, an A <laughs> man. My synapses are slowly coming together. I think I'm a bit shattered. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a song that is on the issue demo. So it's an issue demo song. So it was in the pool, but it gets pulled for Jackie Lomax. It does. So how does it get to Jackie Lomax? Well, ja- well, should we talk about, about Jackie Lomax? Jackie Lomax yeah. was, was, was one of their Liverpool contemporaries in the early 60s. Um, 
and he was in a band uh, fantastically named The Undertakers. <laughs> yes. You know, and there are there are there are publicity photographs of them dressed accordingly. Um but um you know, he he The Undertakers followed the traditional route and went off to Hamburg. Um they released a couple of singles. They managed one week in the UK charts with a song called Just a Little Bit, number 49 mm-hmm. in 1964. Uh, I don't know this song. Um <laughs> I don't either know. They, they went off as the kind of, I suppose, third, fourth or fifth wave of the British invasion and spent some time in, in America. But it, by 1967, Brian Epstein had uh, taken the band under his wing. They were, uh, by this stage, they changed the name to the Lomax Alliance. And he was putting them on at the uh, Savile Theatre. And um, So that's interesting. He's in, the, he's in the Epstein universe. So he's in the Beatle universe because Brian is actually, so this is almost somebody Brian signed to Apple in a way, nearly. Well, in a way, he he uh, they they actually signed to CBS just before Brian died. There was two singles, uh, maybe three singles went out. Uh, two by the band, one by Jackie Lomax, and then they sort of, uh, you know, it it all sort of fell off off the table a bit. Um, but then, yes, Apple uh, then took over once um, Epstein died, and uh, Jackie Lomax has given interviews where he said he actually thought he was being signed as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Well, Apple does begin as a publishing company before yes. a recording company. There is a disconnect between those those two kind of phases. There, there is. I mean, if you look at um, I, I momentarily escapes me what song, but if you look at Cream's Disraeli Gears, there's their song. There's at least one song on there which is, is Apple Publishing. So Apple Publishing was was in advance of the record label. So he thought he was being uh, signed as a songwriter. Uh, George heard some of these demos and said yeah. to him. I think you should make an album. I will produce it when we get back from India, according to Jackie Lomax. So before they go to India at the start of the year, George is saying, I will, when I come back, these are good, I'll produce. Now, this That's interesting because George has never produced anybody mm. else before, but he's he's committed to this project before they go to India. Well, th- this is the big thing about Sour Milk Sea is that it's a first for George. It's George's first external writing, producing gig, you know, standalone from the Beatles. And, you know, what we kind of see when Apple goes live in the summer of, you know, or when I say live, kind of goes into live in terms of the public's imagination is seeing how each Beatle responds, you know? So, you know, this is George's response. Paul is kind of Mary Hopkins, Black Jack Mills band. Um, Ringo's John Tavener, brings John Tavener into the picture. Um, and and John is also present, <laughs> um, but he's. Oh, I think John gets hot chocolate on board at some point. But they're all kind of doing their own thing. But uh, yeah, J- Jackie Lomax is seen as a, a a prospect, and Sour Milk Sea is the 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 song. Even though he's writing his own songs and doing his own demos, it's kind of seen. Well, this is the track that will. You know, George is trying to do what Paul would later do with Come and Get Us, is to try and give a bespoke song that will land at the top of the charts. I think so. I think so. And uh, uh, the point that you made earlier, this comes out as one of the first four, that the, those first four Apple singles. Um, and if yep. you look, you've, you've got the Beatles, Hey Jude, that stands on its own. You've got the brass band uh, uh, theme tune. You've got uh, Mary Hopkins, uh, Those Are The Days, uh, with sort of folk end. And then you've got this quite for the time heavy rock song mm. um but 
if you go back to the Isha demos, I mean, it's quite a, a well-arranged demo. You know, you've got George singing, you've got him vocalizing a guitar part. Um, it actually works quite well. And again, it cleans up remarkably well for on the, uh, the White Album set. Uh, yeah, it, it sounds great on the White set. And as you say, yeah, it has that. Sometimes George's demos are just very, very straightforward. But you can hear in the Sour Milk Sea demo, you can hear the record, you can hear the track. Uh, it's it's very well put together in that regard. It is. I mean, George doesn't usually do that kind of arrangement at the stage in his his demos. The other thing is, it it suddenly popped up uh, in the All Things Must Pass box. Yes, yes, it did. Yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten where, that. Where he takes a second pass at it, with a very kind of ragged. It's done at the end of the day, and it, you think, well, was he was he coming back to that? At that stage, whenever I saw that listed as a sort of pre-release, I thought, are they going to put, you know, some earlier demo? I had no idea that he'd come back to that in 1970. And you think, why? Well, he, he, yeah. I was going to say, why, why, why does it not, given that it was such a good arrangement that he put time into it, why does it not make um, the White Album? Why is it not? even considered why does he give it away and it suddenly occurred to me that this, this is a song which is all about meditation it's all about you know if you're stuck somewhere you've got to you know get out of the sour milk sea you've got to so he, he talks about it being about meditation but of course by May when they're recording this demo the Maharishi is you know persona non grata that, that mm. meditation is not the flavor of the month anymore John's written Sexy City, Paul's not on board, Ringo left early. George, having been the, the kind of in the forefront of all of that for maybe a year or more, suddenly his whole kind of worldview and vision and Eastern religion and meditation is really being slightly discredited. So you think, well, yes, of course, they're not going to put a song praising meditation onto the White mm -hmm. Album. And it, it occurred to me, is that why this song suddenly gets... Well, I've never been sure of the timeline between, you know, they, they come back from India and, you know, they're all sort of saying, well, we've done that and we're not going to be conned anymore. But obviously, George continues, you know, by the time we get to all things must pass, he's he's totally submerged in all of this. So would, did George keep his keep himself quiet? Did he keep his counsel when he came back from India and say, I'm going to get back to this later on? Or did he shake it off for a few months and then circle back to it in 69. I've never really understood what happened there. I think, well, the, the, there's one interesting area, one one thing that happens is that later in 1968, Paul, I think it's Paul and George have to fly to Sweden to meet mm -hmm. the Maharishi, to tell him to stop using the Beatles as a selling point. So mm -hmm. they that that's they, they actually fly across, meet him, have a have a discussion, and uh, you know to kind of tell him to back off. So I think at that point, George is keeping his own counsel. You know, he may be practicing meditation. He may not have given up on that, but he's not putting it into the public domain. It's not coming out in his songwriting. It's not until after the Beatles break up that suddenly, with all things must pass, these you know think about the songs he's writing in '68. Um, there's nothing overtly related to meditation, or the, there's no Indian mm. music. There's there's no references to that. So I think while he's with the Beatles, there's a slight embarrassment, and we maybe come on to this in the context of another song. But I think it's a slight embarrassment on his point part about mm. the whole meditation experience. Um, 
this song isn't even attempted. So then it meet by the Beatles. So and I think that's maybe why. And then he suddenly right. Well, we give that to Jackie Lomax, and he does a very good job of arranging that. And mm. there's a lot of effort put into it. And um, you know, a lot of famous people playing on that record. Oh, that. Well, just, just one last thing. I mean, I just I, George always has a bee in his bonnet about people using him. Yeah. You know, but people kind of hanging off his name or expecting to get something out of him. And I, I guess there was some transition. And I'm just freestyle thinking here. I'm sorry. I, I, and I try and avoid the amateur psychologist. But I guess there was some point he needed to disconnect the value that he got from the spiritualism, which he'd already gotten pre Maharishi from Indian music and and, uh, and from Ravi Shankar. Uh, he needed to separate that from the kind of the, pe- the, the, the Barnum aspect of what the Maharishi was doing to his name and to his soul I guess and it took a while for him to re- realign that kind of thing it seems to me anyway but you know he, he I, never left that meditation no. spiritual stuff uh, really no but I, th- I, I, th- I think there's an element to that because what happens uh, with the Maharishi is he, he teams up with Mike Love and uh, the Beach Boys and they do a tour together um, that in modern day times lose, loses millions of dollars I, I was reading they 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 <laughs> I mean, the tickets don't sell for this tour. Um, you know, this is post Brian's breakdown, post yeah. Smile. But on one occasion, there's a 16,000 uh, seat auditorium and they sell 800 tickets. That must have been a Whoa. good show. Must have been a good show. So, oh you know, word. but you could see that if the Beatles had still been on board, the Maharishi would have been pushing that, you know, well, let's do a joint tour. To, to, yeah. bring, to bring the good word to the people. Um, and, uh, you know, the Beach Boys really, it, I, I, it's not a Beach Boys podcast and I don't pretend to be a Beach Boys expert, <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that did considerable harm to their career amongst other things in the late 60s, 68, 69. Yeah. Yeah, getting back to Sarah Muxi, as you say, there's a very um, well-organized demo. The demo, I think, might just be George on his own. I'm never really sure that there's any Beatle elsewhere on that. I don't think so. No, it's, it sounds to me as if it's uh, George and then overdubbing uh, parts. and Nice little kind of guitar parts and uh, vocalized guitar solos. It's a very arranged demo, yeah. But when it comes to the main track, as you say, there's some heavy friends involved. Yeah. Um, who's there? Well, you've got uh, Eric Clapton is there. Um, and this is, we were saying about first, this is the first time that George and Eric are sort of sharing lead guitar duties um, on a track. So as well as being the first song that George gave away, the first production song, it's really the first time he and Eric are collaborating mm-hmm. um, in, in, in that way. Um, the drummer is Ringo Starr. And, from the uh, Beatles. From, from the Beatles. And mm-hmm. uh, the bass player is Paul McCartney. Also from the Beatles. Also from the Beatles. So, <laughs> and it also has Nicky Hopkins. Yes, from such songs as uh, Revolution. Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, fantastic, uh, famous session player, Nicky Hopkins, uh, who pops up in lots of great 60s tracks. Yeah, that's a Clapton star, McCartney, Hopkins, Harrison. That's quite a lineup backing up Jackie Lomax on the Sour Milk Sea you'd, single. You'd, you'd think that'd be a surefire hit. I am... I. I how was the song not a hit? It seems, it, it, it you know, I, 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 I do love the track. I think it's great. You could argue maybe it doesn't have the kind of X factor that certain hits mm. have, you know, like those were the days does have kind of a certain hit single X factor thing that just appeals to everyone. Sour Milk Sea, great song. 
But it's extraordinary in 1968 that a track, George's first production, first solo writing credit, backed by the Beatles on the Apple launch day label, couldn't get any more publicity, couldn't have any more firepower behind it. This single, Tanks. Yeah. Um, I think, as, as a, well, Lomax always said it just got lost in the shuffle, that there was so much publicity surrounding Hey Jude. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, those were the days. I mean, the two number one singles. I mean, that that's the the thing I always think about Apple is, you know, it starts with two number one singles in, in, in the UK. Um, yeah. So it just kind of get, he, he said it just got lost in in that shuffle um the, the thing about the song itself it's a kind of tricksy song um mm-hmm. it's uh it hasn't it hasn't got a great hook mm-hmm. you know in terms of it, it's a great it sounds to me more like a great album track rather than a hit single you know it doesn't have a catchy yeah, it doesn't have that magic no fairy no. dust thing yeah yeah no um and, and I, th- I think that's probably the problem but then it you know it get lost in the album as well the album which is called uh is this what you want to which the public resignedly said no um <laughs> it uh it, it that's a bit cruel but it's a good album it's a solid it's a good solid album but it's it's yeah. it, it's one of those things where you 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 think you've got all the ingredients and it ends up as less than the sum of the parts you know well i'm gonna say something very mean which was Jackie Lomax, totally capable, but he just, he just, he just wasn't it really. He just wasn't, no. uh, he, he, you know, th- there's a difference between say a Jackie Lomax and a Robert Plant kind of, do you know what I mean? It's, it's yes. that kind of divide. So nothing wrong with Jackie Lomax, but I, I, you know, I could see why from an A&R point of view, you think, well, this guy's, you know, isn't necessarily a, a bajillion seller, you know, he's not Rod Stewart, say Rod Stewart would be a good example to put against Jackie Lomax. What it, what it says interesting is people with higher technical skills than me have grafted the backing track of Sour Milk Sea onto the George vocal from the demo and have made a fake, you know, essentially this is George singing backed up by Eric, uh, Paul, Ringo and Nicky. So, yep. you know, uh, and to make a fake Beatles version of Sour Milk Sea, which is very good. I quite like it. I, I recommend people YouTubing it. It's a good idea. It would be, it would it would have fit you know it would have would have fit uh, I think uh, at the time on on onto the white album but um, the reason why this song you know we mentioned some reasons why this song was important about George giving it this first song he gave away which indicates he's you know he's starting to build up songs but the most important thing is Paul's plagiarism of this song. Now I had never really thought about this until you pointed it out to me. So. Yes, and I, I can see what, what you mean. Explain yourself. Well, I'm just going to read a little snippet of lyrics and see if this reminds you of, of, of something that would come later. Uh, get out of the sour milk sea. You don't belong there. Get back to where you should be. Find out what's going on there. I see. Get back to where you should be. So Get back to where you once belonged. a song called Get Back. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see that. That might be, it's kind of a jammy groovy song and it's i can see how in a jammy groovy situation if you're churning away at bits and pieces of lyrics that that might bubble up to the top you know i can see well, that bruce spicer who who writes prolifically about the, about the beatles um I, I haven't found this particular take but he says that during early rehearsals of get back paul at one point is kind of singing like lomax which i'm not quite sure what that means um <laughs> and at one point actually yells come on jackie in the mm. middle of uh uh in the middle of the take so you know, Get Back is a song that was, in McCartney's words, is made up in the studio. 
So, yes. um, and, and that's what I mean. If he's kind of churning through stuff, his, his, his mental Rolodex would have pulled a bit from that song. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should it have been on the White Album? That's our question. Um, I, I like the fake version that you refer to. I do to. like the fake version. And, yeah, and I think I it's think, great. Yeah, I, I, I think it could have been. Um, yeah, I think it should have been. Let's say, let's say yes. David, David, I, give, uh, David Quantic thinks it should be. Okay. Uh, well, then let's agree with David Quantic. Um, the <laughs> if David Quantic jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? No, no. Um, uh, can, can I? I, yes. I just want to say what David Quantic actually says. He says the song is excellent, and uh, I regret how it was passed over, together with "Not Guilty," in favour of quote "Old Toot," such as "Rocky <laughs> Raccoon" and "Bungalow Bill." So there you go. Well, yeah, which is which is the most old toot George song on uh, the White Album? Because you have... Uh, there, is, there isn't one. Guitar, well, I, I think the case would be made. If you had to bump one George song, would you bump Savoy Truffle? No. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> you mean he's, I... only al- he's only allowed one song per side, Stephen. They're the rules of George's White Album. So we should have a triple album and then we can have Not Guilty, or we can have a... We're coming up to not guilty. George, know your place. That that's the phrase. <laughs> that that phrase got some traction on Facebook when we used it in uh, the White Album episode. Um, sure. <laughs> if you're if you're asking yeah. me, w- w- would I bump Savoy Truffle? I think Savoy Truffle is the is the, the least of George's four songs on the White that's Album. My, yes, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, but if you're saying would I bump that for Sour Milk C, then I would say no, no. I, I like okay, Savoy. Fair Truffle. enough. Um. Okay, so we're, we're, we're putting this on potentially on our p- hypothetical triple uh, white album. Yeah. Next up is another one of those songs that um, provokes the old day glow bootleg cover of your, which yeah. is What's the New Mary Jane? <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> <Which> is... <laughs> favorite song. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. It is such an odd thing, what's the new Mary Jane, because... Um, you know, if you'd come across on a bootleg 30 years ago, you'd think, well, he was obviously rewiring a guitar or something while he was recording this. He was, there was obviously some, somebody was replacing bulb. He was killing time. Yep. But you go back through the archives and it's demoed in Esher. And it's, you know, the demo is done across m- more than one take in the studio. It's a written song and it's supposed to sound like that, which is odd. Yes, I, 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 I am somebody that came across this on a bootleg 30 years ago, and I just thought this is appalling. This is absolutely hmm. dreadful. And um, I think I think I'd seen the lyrics written down somewhere first. I'd seen the lyrics in, um, you know, the, the, the you know the Bible, the, the Lewis and recording sessions hmm. book. 
um, you know, as a teenager, I'm like, oh, that seems like a strange song. You know, it doesn't really make any yeah. sense. You know, what are these pains that Mary Jane is, is having at the party? Um, so that's where I read about it. And I'm like, yeah, this, this sounds off. It, 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 uh, I, I mean, I, this is a song that I never liked. And I always just assumed, as you say, that it was made up in the studio and it was just them goofing around and it was Yoko and it was a bit like Revolution 9 or some collage thing. But then, as you say, it's actually written. Mm. As a song, it's arranged, it's demoed, it's played in Esher. Um, I have to say, listening again to the Esher demo, I quite like it. I quite oh. like. I quite <laughs> like that acoustic version because where it, where it starts to completely fall apart is when they start adding piano and ripping up paper and um, uh, yeah. you, you know the studio version is a mess and mm-hmm. you can see that. It's it's as bad as Revolution Nine could have been. You know what I yes. mean? There's a fine line where something tips over from being, you know, wonderful and entertaining and engaging and, and weird and, and having and, a point and, and having a point to just nonsense. And I, I, I kind of think in that sense, it's probably more like Carnival of Light. And mm-hmm. but it is still insane that it's a structured song. But I do I do like the little acoustic demo. As I said at the start, that kind of eight-track side four of the uh, the Easter demos double album is a is a great run of songs, and he might have written this with Magic Alex, or Magic Alex was around. Who knows? Yes, he said this in 1969. I think he kind of backtracked, but he said this was the thing I wrote half with our electronic genius Alex. It was called "What a Shame Mary Jane Had a Pain at the Party," and it was meant for the Beatles album. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I mean, at, at best, you know, that, uh, you know, if this comes from India, it, it's curious that they're kind of writing, you know, even the phrase, what a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. It has a very mantra-like uh, aspect to it. So you could see why a phrase like that might, if you're a songwriter, rattle around your head. It's got lots of internal vowel rhymes and all the rest. And, you know, what a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. It just kind of, it tends to have a role. Trying to turn it into a song is a different thing, but I can certainly see that maybe that's where it came from it kind of all that kind of internal rolling rhyme to it and it's just a list of food yeah <laughs> can i can i can yep. i can, can i read you a poem uh yeah we do that every episode where we just stop and you read me a poem i'm so just gonna continue. read you a poem but we rarely, <laughs> we rarely, but we rarely put rarely, rarely put that in the episode but this time no we cut them out but that's fine what is the matter with mary jane she's crying with all her might and main and she won't eat her dinner rice pudding again what is the matter with mary jane what is the matter with mary jane she's perfectly well and she hasn't a pain but look at her now she's beginning again what is the matter with mary jane where that from? Where does that come from? That is a poem by A. A. Milne from nineteen thirty-four oh. called "Rice Pudding" from his book "When We Were Very Young." Thank you. Wow. Well, no, I, even I'm surprised. Is that an acknowledged reference point for? It is. It is because I just. I. It is tucked <laughs> away in your favorite book, the White Album book that came with the uh it's oh. there's a little reference and i went and thought really and I, so i went into a.a milne is is obviously uh you know uh, winnie the pooh isn't he? winnie the pooh christopher robin yeah. and yeah um so he had a he had a poem so you think well is this back to the kind of edward lear lewis carroll nonsense stuff and he's got that in his head and then he's thinking well that poem is rice pudding so then he's talking about you know spaghetti and chapatis and mexican beans makes, and yeah yeah well, you know, he's 
he's also in India, so he's dealing with chapatis, he's dealing with unusual food. It all goes into the the brain gumbo, I guess. Yeah. And he's writing. He and you know, there's this kind of '67 kind of nursery rhyme vibe, but he's still there's still nursery rhyme aspects to things like "Cry Baby Cry" that he's 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 writing at the time. So. Yeah. yeah, it does. It does. It does. Uh, you know, he's into Lewis Carroll. Why not A.A. Milne as well? That and does make a lot of sense. And as you say, it, it fits with, with Cry Baby Cry, I mean, Mr. Mustard, Bungalow Bill, uh, the, the, these kind of chi- that, that whole kind of childhood vibe, you know, in a doll's house, the alternate title of the album, you know, that, that, that kind yeah. of slightly haunted, weird reminiscences of childhood, that sort of darker side of, of, of Pepper, you know? Hmm. That's, that's 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 a bit of a revelation. And there's a, and, and then there's there's she making with contract or with Apple and contract. Apple and contract. Yeah. So uh, David Quantic says this is about some hanger on at Apple, but I think that's just a line. I think it I, I, again. It's 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 a song that kind of seems to have subconscious preoccupations in it, and Apple yeah. is one of those at that time. So that it's just all coming out. He's just shaking it out. You know. He's yeah. I mean, in retrospect, he's he, he was obviously a prime candidate for some of the therapy things that he'd be heading into yeah. very, very soon. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's, yeah. he's he's trying to shake it out and figure out what's what's going on. Um, yeah, it is demoed in Easter in May, and it's <laughs> it sounds like I'm singing the song. It's demoed in Easter in May, and uh, he's. Um, he, he, but it doesn't actually hit the Abbey Road studio floor until uh, August. Uh, the 14th, 1968, and it's just John, George, Yoko, and Mal. So yes. no Ringo, no Paul. And uh, it, it gets more than one take. It's, uh, you know, it's <laughs> like it's recorded like a proper song. Yeah, they, I mean, they're really going for it, you know. So so you, you've got four takes, I think. And you mm. look at look at the... Um, at uh, the instrumentation, accordion, football rattle, handbell, ripping paper, percussion, a swanny whistle, always a bad sign, tambourine, <laughs> and a vibraphone. There is no good can come of ever getting a swanny whistle out of a, the dressing up box. It's, it's sort of, yeah, it, it all reeks of bad idea. What have we got? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, he, it, this, is, this is what he says at the end, Lennon says at the end of the big long take that appears on Anthology 3. Let's hear it before we get taken away. And I think, yeah, that, that yeah. Sums, sums it up. Um, it, it does It does appear, obviously, like um, um, many uh, old bits from the cupboard on Anthology. That's where it kind of first gets its official release. Um, and then there's a different version on the 50th anniversary of the, the White Album, plus the, the Usher version as well. So we've now got three versions of what's the new Mary Jane officially released by the Beatles, when really we needed zero. Well, there's more to come. There's more to come because, I mean, it, it's mixed. I was just looking at the dates. It was mixed on the 26th of September, 1968. They have another yeah. pass on the 14th of October. In, on September the 11th, 1969, John makes three new stereo mixes intending to put it out as a Plastic Ono Band single. And then in November 1969, he has another crack at it and adds some more vocals. So he like he was not letting this one go. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and obviously this was the very controversial potential Plastic Ono band single that was supposed to be, you know my name, look up the number on one side, yeah. what's the new Mary Jane on the other side, which, you know, I, I guess, you know, you could maybe make the case that what's the new Mary Jane is potentially more Plastic Ono band, but making the case that, you know, my name, look up the number as a Plastic Ono band is not going to fly. That's, that's, a, no, that's no. a Beatles song yeah. because Paul is singing it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's. Should it have been on the White Album? No, 
Definitely not. I can definitely no. not. I, 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 I think, was it ever really in contention? I mean, it just seems so bizarre. But if you look at the notes for Anthology, Mark Lewis writes these and he said, yes, it was. He just it fell at the final hurdle. You, but you can't imagine Paul was ever going to let this. Well, I, you know, the White Album, you know, the sessions run from May to October 68 and they get increasingly you know, the, the activity increases a lot towards the end as they try to get it finished. So I assume they're just doing mixes of everything to put on mm. the table to decide what to, to take. So nothing, they just didn't have the time to make the decision to leave it behind, I think. So just everything was up for grabs. Um, so, you know, how planned it was for the final run, we, we don't really know, but I think no. it was just getting mixed with everything else and, and people were due to, to make a call, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm, I think they made the right call. Um, Mal did uh, did say in the, he, did, he did break the news to fans through the Beatles book magazine in November 1968 that uh, he said, you know, that he was making the case for the White Album. A, a recording you won't hear on the new LP, but I thought you'd like to have my notes on it. It's a very strange one. John thought it up and John sings it. Outbreaks of raucous laughter, many instrumental sounds, the sort of controlled Lennon chaos. The theme of the words, well, you listen and you decide, but it's a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. Good old Mal. Good old Mal. So moving on then from, uh, uh, you know, a song that seemed like a throwaway uh, made up song to a track that got over a hundred takes and still did not get released, which is George's Not Guilty. Once again, poor old George, thinking there was going to be six sides of vinyl, contributing six songs potentially. Um, Not Guilty, uh, which I think probably is the highest ranked unreleased song or the best unreleased uh, song. I don't know I, how you'd phrase that. I, I think, it's, I, I think it's so. A pity. I think so. I think so. I love this song. Yeah, it's a good song. It, it's another Rishikesh song. Yes. Um, written sort of in Rishikesh or certainly about Rishikesh. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of those songs. I can't remember thinking back to our songs the Beatles wrote about themselves or wrote about each other. Did did, did we list this? Um, where where George is really write, writing about, I think, the, the trip to India and the aftermath and the fallout. Uh, yeah, because that's the general tone, tone of the song. So he's, he's not guilty for getting in your way on the road to Mandalay, that it's it's not his fault. Did he, did he really think that people thought it was his fault or did he think he was being set up or had somebody said something to him? I guess we don't know. Well, there's a, you know, there's a lot happens in that 68 and you know maybe one day we'll go to india and do a live episode from uh i think so Rishi for Cash. tax reasons for tax I mean, reasons for, 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 yes, yes artistic reasons <clears throat> for artistic reasons that's what um, i have to say but uh, you you know that that that's a kind of people take that as being a watershed in the paul and john relationship something changes around that time and everyone there says, oh well yoko and that was that was the change but i think george's position in the band changes fundamentally at this point so he's been sort of taking a back seat musically uh mm. in in 67 you know we say he's not playing the guitar he's thinking about you know indian music and playing the sitar and, and that sort of thing um then yes he leads them into the maharishi leads them to to india and then that all go south for whatever reason um and i think there was, a, there, was there was a degree of embarrassment because he he'd been setting the direction i suppose the kind of spiritual mm. direction or the philosophical direction or maybe if not the musical direction uh of the band and then suddenly that's all gone and discredited and he's kind of saying well look it's not my fault you, you know yeah, as you say that happens at the exact same time as 
as Yoko. So John and Yoko, basically the, 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 the big joining up happens in May 68. But May 68 is also the point where George might feel he's been put in his place or he's been embarrassed or he's been put to one side. Yeah. Um, you know, and that certainly, as you say, deserves just as much attention because I'm thinking of things in that sort of August 67 onwards period where they, they hook into the Maharishi. You know, I'm thinking of stuff like John and George, George in particular going on to like David Frost's TV programs and being the the vocal face and kind of taking on a, a spokesman role within the band that he hadn't really been before. You know, occasionally John and, and Paul definitely would have given interviews on their own. But, you know, George was kind of pushed forward as the face of this enterprise. And it was a very sincere enterprise for the four of them until it suddenly wasn't. Yes. And I, th- I think it's that fallout. I think it's that shift, which is is partially addressed in this uh, in this song, and and uh, you know, George gave an interview in 1987 uh, to Musician uh, Magazine, and he said, "Yeah, that that was, this was about the grief that I was catching. I said I wasn't guilty of getting in the way of their career. I said I wasn't guilty of leading them astray and or going to Rishikesh to see the Maharishi. I was sticking up for myself. So whether they were." Um, actively pointing the finger at him, uh, certainly he felt that. He felt mm-hmm. a, a degree of embarrassment, I suppose. Yeah, and, you know, I'm going to guess uh, men being men, particularly in the 60s, they didn't talk about any of this, no. did they? You know, I, I maybe, did, did the other three know that that's what Not Guilty was about? I think the other three, in terms of Sexy Sadie, knew exactly what Sexy Sadie was about, because Sexy yes. Sadie is basically... Maharishi. Um, Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But irrespective of that, it does get a huge amount of attention when George brings it into the studio. It it does. And uh, I mean, John at one point, you know, much later in his career would say, you know, it was easier for us to communicate with each other by music. You know, our music was a means of communication. It was easier to do that than to actually have genuine conversations. I mean, he's talking specifically in the context, I think, there of his relationship with Paul. But, um, you know, I I, I think you would have to be incredibly tone deaf not to see if you were sitting while George was playing this to you thinking this is <laughs> this you know I, I'm not for leading you astray on the road to Mandalay or I do I don't want to upset the apple cart uh, you yeah. think that that those are really or making friends with every Sikh you, you know he, he's <laughs> the, the, these are very yes. pointed um lyrics but you know george he's not he's not known for metaphor from time to time he does tend to just say it yes yeah so um uh, you know it's pretty direct and it's pretty blunt the 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 demo is is good i think sort of everybody is on that you've got another uh well-arranged guitar solo and vocalized guitar thing Uh, but then yeah they 100 takes 102 takes Um, yeah yeah, you can't remember. You can, you can imagine maybe certain members of the band mightn't have been too happy at going to a hundred takes. Like just, just you know, just get it down. He was maybe uh, pointing out to Paul. You know, this is what this is what it's like. <laughs> this is what it's like for us. But uh, or perhaps Maxwell Silverhammer was, or Obladi Oblada was, uh, which came first? I wonder. But. Um, and and they start yeah they start work on the eighth of August and they're also working on Hey Jude that day and I'm wondering did George have any intention of pitching this as a b-side you know maybe maybe could be could be a b-side um there's a there's an added kind of you know piquancy to the whole thing if you if 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 you kind of reflect on george's ideas for hey jude being rejected um and at the same time he's he's singing a song you know well 
I'm not I'm not guilty for this. I'm not guilty for that. I, you know, the, 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 the evidence or redolent of a sort of atmosphere at that point, perhaps. Well, he, he, he does work on a guitar sound for not guilty. And I think it's a bit of a precursor to his, you know, you know, slide sound that he, he kind of brings through in the next year or two, that, this kind of repeated kind of bluesy you know, riff uh, over the intro, which um, he, he, it's overdubbed. And apparently he's, he's, he plays in the control room with his, his amp stuck in a, in an echo chamber to kind of get that guitar vibe. But I, I certainly see a direct line between the guitar line on not guilty and, and the kind of that guitar sound that we get to know him for a year or two later. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's right. It it, it, it is a very distinctive uh, sound, but it's a, again, it's another one of those George songs that's very kind of tricksy. You mm. know, it, it's got lots of little stop-start time changes, and uh, so uh, you think it's a song that could have been simplified. Um, and it, it, there are there are there is a later version that we'll talk about that where he does just that. But I I think it's 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 a very tricksy song, which again. The White Album is full of those, you know, uh, mm. tr- tricky time signatures, Martha, my dear, happiness is a warm gun. Um, and uh, they say take 99 was the basic track. So it took 99 takes to get to that basic yeah. track. Um, and again, he keeps working at it. He keeps adding guitar. He keeps adding vocals, redoing vocals. Um, and then he goes off for an unscheduled holiday to Greece. Well, you kind of think that you're part of, yeah, he's, he, he kind of seems that he can't really nail the, the vocal. And you could argue maybe the vocal is, is, still seems a bit scratch in the version that we have today. But yeah, I think the song might have been a victim of events because as you say, he goes off for a sudden holiday in Greece and they record your blues um, uh, without him or they do some overdubs for overdubs, your blues, yeah. not without him. Sorry, they, they don't, he's, he's on the original recording. But when he comes back, it's when Ringo walks out. Yeah. And so it's it's a that kind of middle of August time turns into a little bit of chaos. And this I guess they just never because the Beatles are all about forward 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 they never really get back to maybe close the loop on on not guilty. No, it seems to have it seems to be mixed and then left and as you say they they're just at this point recording everything and mixing everything and stockpiling everything. So um It'll come back, you know, if what's the new Mary Jane is sitting there on the table for inclusion, not guilty is there for inclusion. It's it's as completed as it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I still think, you know, even if there was work to be done on it, it's still a totally functional song that could have could have gone into the Savoy Truffle spot. But, um, you know, it's 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 it's. it's you know, it's it's a great song. It's a great song. It's it's. You think one is it just that it's too personal a song mm. uh, about the band? I mean, personal about the band that they're not going to wash their their dirty linen in public in this way. Um, is that why? Because the NME is listing it as among possible tracks as late as the twenty sixth of October, and obviously, a decision had been taken at this point. Um, but. Uh, this is George is out of the country while this is happening. While while, you know, while they're sequencing the album, yeah. While they're sequencing the album, and you you kind of think, well, would, would it would he have been there to kind of pitch for this? If uh... well, I do I do wonder about that because you know you look at the White Album, the thirty songs that do come out on the White Album, and uh, you know, are there are there aren't really any songs that have to do 
potentially with their dirty laundry. The closest is Sexy Sadie, but that's kind of rewritten, so nobody needs to know what that's no. about. Um, most of the songs are Flight of Fancy. The only other one that is perhaps hugely self-referential to Beetledom is Glass Onion, but that's kind of a, a goof and a bit of fun. It's not, it's not destroying the myth, it's burnishing the myth, you know, so that gets in the door. Yes, it's a very kind of knowing song and it's a kind mm-hmm. of nudge, you know, peop, uh, there's a wink and a nudge to that. But I, I think, uh, as you say, George doesn't really do metaphor. This is this is a very literal uh, laying out if you kind of look below the first layer. I mean, and even that, the line that I think would have would have next the song is, uh, you know, I don't want to upset the apple cart. And you think mm-hmm. that's a kind of clever you know, apple it's card. A, I see what you've card. done. It's a kind of pun. It's a kind of cliche, but I, I think that would have laid bare uh, maybe twelve months early what was happening in Apple. We should probably talk a little bit about the album that never was, which was Sessions, because yes. Not Guilty kind of hangs around as as you know. And again, to come back to um, Lewis and Studio Sessions book, when I'm reading that, I'm reading about songs that I that exist but that can't be heard and Not Guilty was certainly one of them. Yes. And people weren't totally uh, uh, immune to the idea within the, the corridors of EMI that, you know, there's there's gold in them hills. Uh, and so there's a, a plan in the early 80s to put together an album called Sessions. Yes. So this was uh, an in-house engineer, John Barrett, was given the task of listening to everything. And, and, and basically, this is them starting EMI, starting to log what they have, uh, you know, to, to sort of make a record of that. And in 1983, they had that uh, they opened the studio and allowed people in and they played a soundtrack while people were walking around and you could hear unreleased uh, Beatles tracks. And that really kickstarted the bootleg. I remember those coming out, the, those those tapes coming out um, on bootlegs in the mid eighties, uh, yeah. t- taken from that walk around Abbey Road. I mean, what I mean, how they didn't know this was going to happen. But um, nineteen eighty four sessions is is being readied, and uh, Jeff Emmerich is remixing and re editing the material, and he seems to be just given a free hand to edit and snippets out of songs and uh you know some of his choices are a bit odd but um it was all set for november 1984 but emi did not want to clash with that soundtrack album from the film that you like so it was cancelled because give my regards to broad street soundtrack was coming out well if you want an album full of rejigs half-assed Beatles songs I think there's only one purchase that you could make for Christmas 84. It's another reason to dislike uh, that film, that it, that it <laughs> cancelled uh, cancelled sessions. Not, not, not entirely. Paul didn't like it. Nobody liked this idea. I mean, it's a non-chronological run, so I'm just looking at the track listing of sessions now. And, you know, obviously it's a prototype um, 11 years before the fact. It's a prototype anthology. Yeah. And it's, it's basically trying to answer the question of, what if anthology was just songs that were actually finished and then jumbled up in chronological order? Yes. Um, so the, the final proposed track listing for Sessions was Come and Get It, Leave My Kitten Alone, Not Guilty, I'm Looking Through You, the Anthology 2 version, and What's the New Mary Jane? That was side one. So, you know, I, I can see myself playlisting this later on today. And then side two, How Do You Do It? Besame Mucho, one after 909, the 63 version. If you've got trouble, yeah, rock on anybody. That means a lot. While my guitar gently weeps, the um the acoustic. solo acoustic version from Anthology 3. Mailman Bring Me No More Blues from the Letter B sessions. And uh Christmas Time is here again, Interplanetary Remix. Um 
you know, a solid enough album. And, you know, there, there's, there's good stuff there, but it wasn't the right album at the right time, basically. No, uh, no. And what, what I would say is, um, you, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Jeff Emmerich and his book, but one of the other <laughs> things not so just if you're playing to, nothing is real bingo Stephen has just mentioned jeff emmerich's book <laughs> um well what what say jeff emmerich seems to have been given a free hand um to sort of mix and edit and what he does with not guilty is he edits out a guitar solo <laughs> um yeah. and uh cuts it down to three minutes 22 um and that's the version that ends up on anthology three because I remember, I remember when the fiftieth uh, anniversary edition of the White Album came out. It, it, it said, you, you know, um, it was the same take. That's what I saw and, too. Yeah, and yeah. I thought we have a hundred and two takes, or you know, full <laughs> or partial takes. Why are you releasing the same take? But actually, what you get with the White Album is the unedited version, yes. um, which is much longer and has a solo. And I think that's the version the definitive version that was sitting ready for for consideration in 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 the white album um you know he also uh, just while i'm on my jeff emmerich uh, hobby horse <laughs> he he he's the one that takes the last little notes of the acoustic while my guitar gently weeps and creates that little loop at yes. the end. and you th you think these are creative decisions that are just being handed over to jeff emmerich who we know and doesn't care for anybody in the band except Paul. So it, it is really weird that those versions eventually are the exact same versions that appear yeah. on Anthology 3 uh, 12 years later. And yeah, I didn't realise at the time until it was pointed out to me. And once you notice it, you can't unnotice that the looped guitar ending at the end of that um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps demo uh, on Anthology 3, which they then fade out, is really irritating. It's <laughs> really irritating. It. Yes, yes. What's the point of this? And it's just one more version of, uh, whereas what, what, you know, we're completely off track here about White Album offcuts, or, or are we? Um, <laughs> no. What I, what I would like, really like to hear is, is the tipping point where While My Guitar Gently Weep, move, Weeps moved from the acoustic song to the really kind of heavy version that, that got released on the album. Where is the kind of, you know, there's a missing fossil record of, yeah. um, of its transition from, from the one thing to another. There's no reason why, for example, uh, you couldn't have a two versions of uh, Why My Guitar Gently Weeps on the White Album. You mean doing, well, yeah, or doing a toad. Yeah, that's true, actually, like a sort of a, and isn't it a pity type thing? Yes. Um, the uh, or do a do a do a strawberry fields. Let's speed that one up. Let's slow that one down. Let's put them together. You, you, Let's you, do you, it. Yeah, you could you could you could have had the acoustic version of while my guitar gently weeps would have would have been a perfect additional track. Um, so if we're giving um, not guilty the sound, if we say it should have been on the white album, definitely. It, I think we're both in agreement on that. Definitely should, and it should have been the long, unedited version. And he, but the amazing thing is that Not Guilty gets a second life along with another uh, Easter demo track called Circles yes. uh, in George's solo life. So he, he, he comes back to them. Yes. Uh, so 1979, uh, the George Harrison album, he digs out uh, Not Guilty. I don't know if you've heard this version. It's a very uh -huh. kind of very laid back kind of uh, it's closer, closer to the to the sort of vibe you get off some of the Easter demos maybe, but, um, and it kind of ties in with George saying, this has got some nice jazzy chords. This could be a great song for Peggy Lee. At one point he, he said, you, you know, <laughs> and I think why would Peggy Lee sing a song about internal 
divisions within the Beatles. But anyway, um, it's it's odd. And I remember at the time, uh, might might have been David Quantic again saying, you, you know, the White Album version is very kind of jerky and 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 odd and they couldn't work out how to arrange the song but by 1979 he just gets Steve Winwood in to play a kind of a pad a kind of synth pad that that runs yeah. under the whole thing and kind of smooths the whole the whole thing out but I, I do remember that album coming out and people going is this the song is this not guilty is this the song that was lost in 1968 and uh, it is yeah, and I, th- I think when I um, when when I kind of went, uh, I kind of did a version of that. And I was like, oh, George has got a version, so I'll go listen to that. You kind of think, oh, I don't really hear a Beatles song here. No, you know, no, it, it doesn't sound like that. You know, no, no. Uh, George, George was in his full American uh, kind of one producer, eye on, mode. producer mode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then another track that's on the Easter demos that he revisits for um, <clears throat> Gone Tropo, his very own. Um, Egypt Station tribute album is yes. uh, Circles. So uh, so he doesn't he doesn't uh, he doesn't leave any morsel unused. This well the story is that he was um, he found the manuscripts or the demo tapes or something mm. when it, so when he was putting together that album in 1979 he found and you can see he obviously you know he writes a song called Here Comes the Moon. You know, he's obviously looking back. He's obviously in a slightly reflective uh, frame of mind and it would have been you know 10 years 78, 79. Mm. Um, but yeah, he, he, he also finds Circle. Circles doesn't appear until uh, Gone Tropo. Um, it's the last song on uh, uh, Gone Tropo. And it's a yeah. very odd, eerie, spooky kind of vibe to it. And um, you think, I, I, I think that could have worked on the White Album. 100%. I, th- I think if you think of side four of the White Album, that whole yeah. cry, baby, cry. And he, he kind of... He, he touches into it in, on, on Long, 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 which yes. I would say is my favourite George song on the White Album. I think Long, Long, Long is an extraordinary confluence of a song versus the recording versus the mood versus the atmosphere. I think it's great. And I think maybe Long, Long, Long is a bit, it, it kind of serves the function that Circles could have served. But I think you can certainly look at Long, Long, Long and look at Circles and go, yeah, I'd like a version of Circles that sounds like that. That would be really, really spooky. I think it, I think it fits perfectly with the Revolution Nine, Cry Baby Cry, Can You Take Me Back? That 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 vibe. It, I have to say it's a it, it's a good version. I like the version on Gone Tropical, but it's a very odd way to end an album. You know, yeah. it's it's it, uh, it uh, it's not a cheery, uplifting uh, song. So, uh, but it does exist on the Easter demos. So, you know, you know that, that, that that's a lot of music to get through, considering how much music is is, is on the White Album. That, that if any of those kind of Sarah Sea Junk, Child of Nature, Circles, Mean Mr. Mustard, Polythene Pam, Not Guilty, What's the New Mary Jane, they were all in various states of dress by yes. the end of '68, and they they could have uh, anything was up for grabs. We also know that Let It Be was in the ether because uh, yeah. that was the big revelation of the uh, White Album box set for me. Is that version of Let It Be? That's it, and we know we we know something was kicking around in an early form as well. So I mean, the, the long the, and winding road I think was kicking around as well. Yeah. So I mean, it, there's a phenomenal uh, amount of material. But you think if you if you add Hey Jude, Revolution, uh, Not Guilty, let let's throw in etc. Um, mm. We can we can leave off Thingamy Bob. Uh, if we <laughs> must have what's the new Mary Jane, let's go with the Isher acoustic demo you 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 know circles you could easily have a, a a third disc so all this nonsense about should the white album be a single disc that's not the question 
No, you're right. The question is, why isn't it a triple disc? Exactly. <sighs> yeah. Um, one last thing. What do you think about the whole Doll's House uh, name? I, I never really... I think I think they dodged a bullet. I think they dodged a bullet. I think it's quite pretentious uh, mm. name. Um, I think uh, family, who are banned about whom I know nothing, um, used the name. Uh, and that, that's what stopped it. But it was, you know, it was from an Ibsen play and you kind of, mm. oh, you know. But I, I, I can see the vibe, that whole thing, you know, songs like Dear Prudence and Long, Long, Long and Cry Baby Cry. There is a kind of dark side to childhood that you could pull. Yeah. You know, you could certainly do a playlist which is music from a doll's house um, to, that, that, that reflected that title. But uh, no, I think you're right. I, I, I don't think it's, I imagine what the artwork would be terrible as well. Well, there is, there is the artwork out there that we seen yeah. there's the the kind of the, the it ends up on the Beatles ballads that cartoon yeah. was in the in the mix for the artwork there's this it's, other piece of artwork which is them on cliff faces kind of in this Mount Rushmore type of thing a psychedelic drawing that's kind of rubbish yeah um so and, and yeah the, the childhood thing you sometimes don't notice so much on 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 the white album you know it's very obvious in 67 Beatles with the the jolly childhood stuff but there's then a, a much darker childhood thing that's going on in, in the white album and I think you're better off pulling that out for yourself instead of having pushed into your face saying hey it's called a doll's house and here's childlike cartoonish drawings do you get it yeah. i, I kind of like the fact that it's able to stand on its own two feet you know i think it works i think i think the childhood theme works better being partially hidden sort of partially mm. submerged even the fact that it's partially submerged other these uh, under these other songs and sort of hidden away and i i, I think you said it at the start of the the, the the first white album the first side two uh, episode um you know there are corners of this album that are still undiscovered and mm. no matter how many times you look into the corners the next time you'll see something slightly different and and some of it is quite unsettling you know yeah and i've always felt the white album has a thing that you know perhaps other beatles albums don't have which is it can often uh it little mold itself around whatever mood you're in or whatever state you are listening to it in. So I, I think I mentioned for the revolution episode, I once listened to it doing a middle of the night drive to bright, bright moonlight. And it, once I hit revolution nine, I was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever listened to. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it can, it can lift you up if you're in a good mood, it can make you feel down if you're in a bad mood. It can push you in all directions. You know, sometimes you're just listening to a record because that's the record I want to listen to and I need, I want to hear it. But the White Album has uh, a bunch of other things going on and uh, that's why it stood the test of time, I guess. I think so. I agree. We agree. That's a good way we to... Agree. Uh... That's, well, what seldom is wonderful. Um, but what do you think, everybody? Do you agree? Uh, I'm sure you do if you've made it this far um, we're available in all the usual places on Twitter at Beatles Pod the Nothing Is Real Facebook group the website which collates everything uh, nothingisrealpod.com the Instagram the TikTok we've put up our uh, biannual TikTok uh, this month so go off and have a look at that and uh, you know we're always happy to um, continue the discussion online and we thank you for all your reviews every review is very much gratefully received and thank you to everyone on ACAST Plus for subscribing for episodes like this um, but yes let's uh, let's go off and spend the rest of the day making white album playlists I think that's, that's generally the plan isn't it? Excellent we'll do that Yes uh, so for Nothing's Real I'm Jason Carty I'm Stephen Cockcroft and thanks for listening
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.